from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, Avoiding Nuclear Catastrophe. Host Leith Anderson, NAE President, talks with Max Tegmark, Professor of Physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Today's conversation is brought to you by National Marriage Week USA, a collaborative campaign to strengthen individual marriages, reduce the divorce rate, and build a culture that fosters strong marriages. Leading up to National Marriage Week, which is February 7th through 14th, you can preach and teach about marriage, launch a marriage class or special event, or post any marriage event on the national calendar. Join the campaign at nationalmarriageweekusa.org. And now, let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, president of the NAE, here with Max Tegmark. Max is professor at MIT and co-founder of the Future of Life Institute and scientific director of the Foundation Questions Institute. His research has ranged from cosmology to the physics of cognitive systems and is currently focused on the interface between physics, artificial intelligence, and neuroscience. He is the author of over 200 publications, and the books are Mathematical Universe, My Quest for the Ultimate Nature of Reality, and most recently, Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, a book that I just got and just personally started reading. Max is a native of Stockholm. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Economics and a Bachelor of Science in Physics from the Royal Institute of Technology. And then he went on to earn an MA and a PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. He's received numerous awards and grants for his research. Max, thank you for joining us and being willing to share your expertise. Thank you for having me. Your research interests have covered many topics, and one I didn't mention is your interest in nuclear nonproliferation, which is the topic of today's conversation. So we're particularly interested in where that began. Where did you get interested in this, and how did that develop? I remember very vividly when I was 14 years old, this guy mentioned ICBMs. I'm like, what's an ICBM? And when he started telling me about intercontinental ballistic missiles and the current situation with nuclear weapons, I was just shocked. Because up until then, I had always figured that I could trust the grown-ups of the world with all the big things. You know, I knew mommy and daddy would make sure there would be dinner on the table. And if a house caught on fire, well, mommy and daddy couldn't maybe handle that. But we had the fire department, and then there was the police, and, and so on. But when I learned that there were ridiculous numbers of hydrogen bombs on the planet that not a single human hardly wanted to actually be used. And yet there had been so many instances where we almost had a nuclear war by accident. I started to think, man, we can't trust the grown-ups with this stuff. You know, if we're going to be good moral stewards of our planet, we need to step it up a notch. It sounds like you grew up at 14. It was a real wake-up call, frankly, to realize that the people who I knew were supposed to be the leaders of the world actually didn't fully have their act together. So you're not the only scientist who is concerned about nuclear proliferation. Um, there are actually a lot of them who are deeply concerned. So some may say, well, that's an, a grown-up issue. That's a military issue. It's, it's not about scientists. But why do scientists care about this? 
Well, first of all, we physicists have a special responsibility for nuclear weapons since it was we who figured out how to build them in the first place. And it was also scientists, not politicians, who were the first to figure out that the effects of them were much more dramatic and dangerous than, than politicians had thought. Mm-hmm. First, people used to think that the main risk with nuclear weapons was just being blown up by them in an explosion. Then, later, it became clear that nuclear radiation poses all these risks. And in fact, the U.S. government has already paid out over $2 billion in damages to people who were harmed by, by just nuclear tests in peacetime. And then, again, scientists understood the electromagnetic pulse, which can wipe out the power grid over a large part of, uh, of the continent, causing huge mayhem. And, and finally, and only as late as in the 80s, you know, after political leaders had equipped our planet with tens and tens of thousands of hydrogen bombs on, on high alert, did scientists discover nuclear winter, which is the most severe effect of all, perhaps, that these weapons can have. So I feel we scientists really have the responsibility to um, keep our eyes on the ball and keep everybody focused on what the greatest risk with these weapons are, which is not that somebody is going to start a war deliberately, but uh, that through accident or miscalculation, we can end up in an absolutely horrible situation where just everybody is, is, is worse off. After World War II, there was a keen awareness of what a nuclear explosion looks like because of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And then during the peak of the Cold War, there were a lot of television programs that tried to depict what it would be like if um, there were a nuclear attack. But we have a new generation that probably hasn't seen those. It's not been as current um, as it was at the peak of the Cold War. You've alluded to it a little bit, but what would it actually be like for someone who survives a nuclear incident? Um, what would they see? What, how many lives would be lost? And what would happen to the infrastructure, things like food distribution, medical care, and changes in the climate? What, what's it like on the ground after a nuclear incident? Those are, those are great questions. I was very touched and honored to get to meet, for the first time in my life, actually, a survivor of... Uh, Nagasaki bombing just earlier this year. And uh, of course, what she described was first this, this, this flash of light, which just incinerated a vast swath of the city and just vaporized a lot of people on site. And the, the, lucky, the, the less lucky ones were the ones who survived for, sh- for a short time to just have horrible burns across their body or, or died from radiation sickness during the days, weeks, months and, 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 and years afterwards. But we have to remember that those two bombs, which were the only bombs ever used so far against civilians, were actually puny compared to most of the nuclear weapons today. They had yields just short of 20 kilotons, so 20, equivalent to 20,000 tons of, uh, of TNT, which is, of course, huge. But today's, like the, it's the biggest hydrogen bomb ever set off, 50 megatons. Okay, so that's, that's or almost 3,000 times more powerful. And, and the vast majority of today's nuclear weapons are hydrogen bombs. They're, again, much more powerful than, than the ones that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So if you drop one of those on a Boston 
the Boston area where I live or New York or so on, you know, can just forget about that city uh, as we know it. Um, but as you allude to, that's actually, so, so, so first of all, let's just talk a little bit about that. So the Russians have 7,000 hydrogen bombs right now. So if they wanted to, they could take out thousands of our largest cities. If you just rank all our cities by size, of course, you could start by New York, LA, Chicago, and so on. By the time you get down to number 1,000 on the list, you get down to small places with less than 50,000 people. In fact, Woburn, Massachusetts, which you've never heard of, it's just a town right next to mine, could get the thousandth nuke. So that just shows you how ridiculously large numbers of weapons we have. If we want to deter the Russians, we don't have to be able to take out their top 1,000 cities. If we could threaten to take out their top 100, you know, that would deter anybody. Yet, actually, we have 7,000 hydrogen bombs, and, and so do they. So, so that could already devastate cities, large and, and small. And, and then uh, after that, we would have a tremendous suffering from, from radiation, which would, through winds, spread over large parts of, uh, of the country, causing cancer and more immediate problems for a lot of people. Uh, another thing which happens immediately is that we'll almost certainly be the victims of an EMP attack. So this is something which people weren't aware of until the 60s. But if you, if you set off a hydrogen bomb not near ground level or a few miles up in the air, but rather 400 or let's say 300 miles above ground, that creates a very, very strong pulse of electromagnetic radiation. So you can get up to 25,000 volts, say, across big swaths of the U.S., which has the potential to fry our electrical grid and a lot of our electronics. So we could be in a situation where all of a sudden cars don't work, or our computers don't work, our internet's down, our power is down. Puerto Rico now, as we know, you know, we've seen how horrible it is when the place is without electricity for weeks. Imagine if much of, if basically all of our country is without power for months, how the infrastructure would collapse from this. And we can't get help now from other regions because they've all been nuked too. And then finally, I haven't even talked about the worst part, which is that if you actually have this unthinkable shooting war between the U.S. and Russia and thousands and thousands of hydrogen bombs go off, then there's the potential that you produce so much soot and smoke from this that it will rise up and darken the skies. Normally, if you have a forest fire, it can also darken the skies, but the, the, though that smoke is below the highest clouds, so next time it rains, all the smoke gets clear, cleaned out. But this nuclear smoke can rise much higher up, maybe four or five, even six times as high as the jet plane, far above the clouds, which means it can stay there for years and years, maybe up to a decade. And moreover, we all know that it takes longer to fly from the east coast to the west coast and vice versa. That's because we have these winds blowing from east to west all around our, west to east all around our planet. So they will rapidly transport the smoke around Earth. So even if we attacked the Russians with thousands of nukes and they weren't able to detonate a single bomb over U.S. soil, pretty soon we too would be covered by this horrible smoke years and years, which would uh, cause probably uh, this nuclear winter where 
in the summertime when you know when you go out to harvest your wheat in Iowa, snowing that day, and it's been you had frost throughout the summer. There's no food, and and when you put together all of these things, it's not at all implausible that we that most people on Earth would 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 die from starvation, from famine, from disease, and the remainders would have to put up with armed gangs, desperate roaming for food. In short, you know, this is not a future we want for our children or, or for ourselves. And, and really, really, really need to, <laughs> to work to avoid. I feel it's a moral imperative. We need to be good stewards of our planet and, and uh, just do everything we can to make sure this never happens. You've mentioned the large number of bombs, um, 7,000 each for Russia and the United States. There are other nuclear powers, India and Pakistan, uh, allegedly Israel, and now North Korea. So what do you know about North Korea's nuclear program and what are the risks there? Yeah, so uh, when we signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty many decades ago, the idea was that that should pre prevent no new countries from joining the nuclear club. But then uh, India and Israel and Pakistan decided to go nuclear anyway and were never actually punished for it. And now North Korea says, okay, we want to be a nuclear state too. And they now have, according to estimates, between 10 and 60 nuclear bombs and, and they're trying to upgrade. <clears throat> Most, the so US and Russia have about 7,000 each. All the other states, none of them have more than a few hundred each. And my guess is that North Korea is aiming to get up to that level also, maybe having a couple hundred, something like this. And what about Iran? Um, we have Iran currently now. has zero. And they clearly were very interested in getting them. There are many countries out there that have been interested in getting them for a long time. The Iran nuclear deal was a deal right where Iran gave, agreed to, to uh, not only stop making them, and they actually poured cement into the core of, of this key reactor that was making them the, the material they needed and allowed regime of inspections in, in return for getting sanctions relief. And uh, what the inspectors are saying is that Iran has been complying with this so far, but now it looks like... Uh, like our president uh, is considering walking away from this deal, in which case Iran will, of course, start making their own nuclear weapons. When it comes to eliminating uh, nuclear weapons, one of the arguments or one of the conversation pieces that comes up is we need to have a lot of them because deterrence is actually what stops people from using them, although 7,000 each seems like excessive deterrence. What, what do you think of that argument that uh, we need more to do less? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. There was a very interesting argument, a very interesting report actually from the Pentagon, which said that for deterrence, we really need to have about 300 hydrogen bombs. And because uh, if you ha we have about 300 that the Russians can never take out, for example, by us having them on nuclear submarines, the Russians don't even know where they are. Right. We can take out we can take out a hundred of the Russians new top biggest cities, and we can also take out a lot of military targets. That's plenty enough for them to not even think about messing with us. 
with nuclear weapons. Um, that it's probably also the reason why France and England and China and Israel and India and Pakistan have decided to have 200 nuclear weapons, 100, 300, numbers in those ballparks. Because think about it, if you just start listing your biggest cities, by the time you get down to 300, you're like, okay, this is enough to turn. So, so it, that raises the question, why do we have 7,000? And uh, it's largely a historical uh, holdover from the Cold War. We used to have over 20,000, actually over about 30,000. And then when, when nuclear winter was discovered, both Ronald Reagan and uh, Gorbachev said, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> we didn't know about this. That, because that very much changes the calculus. Before the idea was mutual assured destruction, that if somebody messes with us, we're gonna blow them back to the Stone Age. Uh, but nuclear winter changes this quite a bit because now it's become self-assured destruction. We know that if we use all our nuclear weapons, even if the other side doesn't even retaliate, right, we're going to die too. And uh, nuclear winter is much less harsh, of course, if you have less explosions. So having if we use a thousand hydrogen bombs, we basically going to cause twice as much climate disaster as if you use 500. This is, this is the key reason, I believe, why Reagan and Gorbachev started a process of, of massive arms reductions treaties between the U.S. and Russia, which brought us down to 7,000. Uh, but then we kind of got stuck there because the political climate got worse. And in the last decade, there's been hardly any disarmament at all, worth mentioning. And, and now <clears throat> the rhetoric is being ratcheted up, and both the U.S. and the Russians are, are investing heavily in building new nuclear weapons. Instead, and I think, I think, you know, it's um, it's really important to remember that from a military perspective, right, what you really want to have is, if you're going to have nuclear weapons, you want to have enough to deter, so a few hundred, and then you want to have a really strong military unconventional weapons that you can actually use without causing an escalation into, into a nuclear war. So you want to have really good aircraft carriers, you want to have attack helicopters, you want to have Marines, all that, all the traditional strength. The people I know in our armed forces generally don't like nuclear weapons because they, they feel these are just weapons they can't use anyway. And it's just a ticking time bomb waiting to get used by accident. I, I think uh, we're in an unfortunate situation where a lot of the public debate is entirely on, on the premise that these weapons will only be used on purpose, so we don't have to worry because no politician in the right mind would use them on purpose. In fact, we've come very close to having wars start by accident, which we can come back to. And, um, and, and, and more importantly, it's a moral issue, not just a military issue. You know, we want to have our army so we can make the world better and a free place, justice and prosperity for all, right? It's a very outdated idea that we want to fight wars by just massacring civilians. In the Roman Empire, they did that. The Nazis would do that. They would go into the city and slaughter people. Um, but that's not considered an acceptable manner of warfare. If you look at, for example, when we, when we Americans invaded Iraq 
right? You can debate the wisdom of that, but the fact of the matter is, we never took the attitude that we're just going to go in and, and murder all Iraqis. And it's become quite the norm in, in the world that you know, just massacring civilians is not an okay thing to do in a war. But look, at, so that's why we ban biological weapons and chemical weapons because they're so indiscriminate. But look at nuclear weapons. They're the most immoral and disgustingly indiscriminate weapons ever. Uh, we're basically saying that, well, if, if there's a problem, we're just going to go murder hundreds of millions of civilians and maybe a few soldiers among them. And uh, because of this, the United Nations, most of the countries in the United Nations voted on this nuclear ban treaty this year which which has been signed now by a lot of nations and and it just it's been it's going it's getting the 2017 Nobel prize this is precisely because of this moral reason that i think is so core also to um to what the evangelical churches in the US are doing are talking about you know, we're stewards of this planet here what what is the morally right thing to do Defending oneself by by you shooting soldiers that attack us, you can really make a good moral case for doing that, but you cannot make a good moral case for for just murdering millions of and millions of innocent women and children who have had nothing to do with this. And so that's why basically there's such a strong push here, including this uh, recent. UN agreement I mentioned to try to get rid of this nuclear excess. As a first step, reduce the nuclear arsenal down to what you actually would need for deterrence. Instead, we're seeing this very unfortunate process now where we're getting replacing most of our nuclear missiles by new ones, replacing most of our nuclear submarines by new ones, and the Russians are doing the same. And and um, uh, I hate to say this, but, but I have to because it's true. You know, this is not entirely driven only by by security. It also has a lot to do with money, because it's in in our country these nuclear weapons are built by private companies, and you can't blame them for wanting to sell their product as much as they can. That's what capitalism is all about. But um, we don't actually need this many, and. Uh, we need to reclaim the moral high ground and, and only have as many as we need. These new ones are also, in my opinion, a, a lot worse than the old ones because what we're doing with the new ones is we're making them much more accurate so that we can they can hit their target not within 300 yards but within better than 200 yards, which is what you need to destroy a, a Russian missile silo. But that completely ruins the whole idea of... of Stability through deterrence. You know, it used to be that we had missiles and the Russians had missiles which could hit the Red Square, which could hit Moscow and could hit New York, but we could never destroy each other's missiles. So everybody knew it was a terrible idea to attack first. But if we're developing missiles that are so accurate now that, that we can pull off a sneak attack, that's going to make the Russians much more jumpy and they're going to do the same and we're going to be much more on the edge. And it's, it's, now it's like you have two uh, dualist, dueling cowboys in the Wild West that are both pointing their guns at each other. It's much more likely that fighting starts. You mentioned about um, 
accidental, uh, sort of a miscalculation. On a few occasions, I've, I've been with former Secretary of Defense William Perry, but one day I was having dinner with him and he told me stories of uh, near misses, of times in the U.S. where we came close to a launch. I mean, it was one of the most sobering conversations that I have ever had. And then uh, Stanislav Petrov, who died this year back in 1983, there was a false alarm in the Soviet Union, and they came very close to accidentally or with a misjudgment launching against the United States. How great is this risk? And uh, have I just heard all the stories or are there a lot more almost missed stories? There are a lot more. Another really hair-raising one happened uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis when uh, a uh, Soviet submarine outside of Cuba had depth charges dropped on it by the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy didn't know that that submarine actually had a nuclear torpedo, that it was authorized to launch without clearance from Moscow. And the U.S. also didn't know that uh, they had almost run out of, of electric power on that submarine. So the temperature had risen to like 120 Fahrenheit. People were fainting from lack of oxygen. And there was a real, they, they thought that World War III had maybe even started already. There was a really apocalyptic mood. And the captain gave the order to launch the nuclear torpedo they had against the U.S. Navy. And this, the political officer on board agreed with this. Fortunately, there was a third guy on board, Vasily Arkhipov, and they required three votes to actually launch. And he said, yes. And they didn't launch. But, you know, that's too close to comfort. We don't want to roll the dice like that. Uh, and these things keep happening. Even after the end of the Cold War, the Norwegians, you know, being <laughs> Swedish, I'm honor-bound to make fun of the Norwegians at every opportunity. They launched this scientific rocket, which they hadn't properly informed the Russians of. And the Russians thought this was a missile heading towards Moscow. And Boris Yeltsin was given the nuclear football ready to launch before they realized the mix-up. And this, and of course, these are only the stories that you and I have a chance to find out about because they've been declassified because enough years have passed. There are clearly plenty more stories that would raise our hair too if we heard about it. And, uh, you know, this is just how it is. If you create an incredibly complicated system with all these weapons, um, we know how it, that complicated systems will eventually malfunction if you give them enough time and that's why the status quo is just very unethical uh, we have all these women and children in the u.s and throughout the world who are, have absolutely nothing to to be blamed for in this and they're gonna die too and it's just absolutely unjust that we, that we put them subject them year after year to the to these sort of risks that's why i think it's going to make us Americans much safer if we get rid of our excess nuclear weapons. And we can start by going down from 7,000 to 1,000 nuclear weapons. The Russians are having uh, lots of, of economic problems now with, with their falling oil prices and stuff like that. So that would empower the less hawkish people in Russia to save money also by reducing their, their weapons. And we would, we would all be better off. So do you propose total elimination or is it simply a reduction? 
I'm not so interested, actually, in, in people who want to argue about whether you should get rid of all the weapons or some of them. I think we shouldn't let perfect be the enemy of the good. It, it's so obvious that the first step we should take is reduction. So I say, let's do that first and then reassess. All right, so on your website, um, the Future of Life Institute, which is, by the way, just a, a fascinating website, um, and you helped found that, there's an infographic that has pictures of U.S. presidents, and then there's a chart that sort of tracks their nuclear legacy. I wonder if you could talk about that and how different administrations have dealt with the whole issue of uh, nuclear proliferation or disarmament. Thank you. It was, it was actually really fascinating doing the research for this because it shatters this quite common stereotype that Republicans are more hawkish and Democrats are more dovish. The actual truth has been exactly the opposite when it comes to nuclear weapons. The, the, the two presidents who have done by far the largest reductions in our nuclear arsenal were George Bush and his son George W. Bush. And uh, I think, I'm guessing that a key reason for this is that when uh, democratic presidents try to do arms reduction treaties, they often have a hard time getting them through Congress. Whereas when Republican presidents do it, <clears throat> they can really get them implemented and get less pushback and are not view that they don't they don't get this dismissed as uh something which is jeopardizing national security for whatever the whatever the reason is though these are the hard facts obama talked a good game about nuclear disarmament but but accomplished almost nothing in terms of actually reducing the sizes of the arsenal and in fact it was on his watch that we have now we started up now this huge new investment you know where the plan is to take one trillion dollars I didn't say a million, I didn't say a billion, I said a trillion, so a million, million dollars over the next three decades to replace most of our nuclear weapons by new ones that are more lethal for a sneak attack, or destabilizing. Now think about what you could do with a trillion dollars. Think about how much you could cut our deficits, cut taxes, think how much better we could take care of people throughout this country education, healthcare, and so on with it, with a trillion dollars. And instead we're blowing it on <clears throat> this incredibly unethical endeavor. So where, where does all this bring you? Do, do you have hope or is it really a totally bleak picture? <laughs> That's a tough one. I, uh, there's obviously a lot of bleakness here, but I, I also feel that there are real signs of optimism. First of all, this uh, new nuclear ban treaty is a really a glimmer of hope. It's the most important thing that's happened in this arena for many, many decades. It's also kind of different from, from um, the previous nuclear treaties because the nuclear ban treaty was not initiated by Russia and China and America and, and North Korea, who are all opposed to it. But rather it was from most of the world's nations who were like, hey, wait a minute, you know, uh, we Brazilians, and so on, you know, it's not in our interest that you guys 
have a stupid nuclear war and create nuclear winter for all of us. So why don't you guys tone it down a bit and, and start cutting your arsenals? I think um, it's quite obvious that people like Kim Jong-un, you know, he want, and Putin, they want to cling to their nuclear weapons because that gives them power, right? They're not, it's not in their interest to give up power of this sort, even if it's unjust. It, it's just like it would have been very naive to think that the unethical apartheid regime in South Africa, that the people who were in charge of it would just voluntarily give up that power. They instead gave it up when they were pressured by the majority. Hey, wait a minute. What you're doing is really quite unjust. Apartheid got stigmatized, and that's what changed it. And I think we're seeing the same thing here now. The fact that most of the world's nations are speaking up is beginning to stigmatize nuclear weapons so that all of us start thinking of this not just as a cool way of, of feeling powerful, but rather as a disgusting and immoral weapon that we really should never use. And if we're going to have them, we should have as few only as we need for deterrence. I think this growing stigma is really going to add pressure also on the superpowers to get their act together and, and cut their arsenals. And we have to remember that uh, you know, even when we, once we decide how big our U.S. military budget is going to be, there's a very fierce competition between different parts of the military for what we should use this for, right? So those, of, those in the military who want to have better rapid reaction forces that can handle terrorist threats and, and things like this, for example, right, they would rather spend money on that than on, on uh, replacing our old and nuclear submarines by new ones and weaken those who want to spend it on, I don't want to wait, in my opinion, waste it on, on stuff like that. Uh, let me finish with a sort of a practical question for the average person. So, so what, what can people in the United States and particularly people in churches uh, or, or the churches themselves, what, what can we do if we're concerned about keeping the world safe from the type of nuclear catastrophe we've talked about? Two things. First of all, make clear to our friends and our, our political leaders that this is not merely something that to be talked about in terms of the usual military jargon, but also it should be talked about as a moral issue that it fundamentally is. It's very appropriate to talk about in the church, the fact that thou, not only thou shalt not kill, but thou shalt not kill millions and millions of innocent civilians that had nothing to do with what, what, what their political leaders cho chose to do, right? I, I also think that it's really important to not, not um, underestimate what we can do as individuals. I, I really like... Um, this quote, you know, and why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? People, if we say that we are against investing our tax dollars in um, in building these new destabilizing nuclear weapons that are better for first strike, well, we can't stop paying taxes, but we can certainly decide where we invest our money. We, we have a site we set up, responsibleinvest.org. So if you have a mutual fund, I would encourage you to just go there and uh, look it up. And you can see if you, if you, you are actually investing, if you are personally profiting from selling these kind of, from building these new nuclear weapons that we don't need. And if you are and you want to put your money where your mouth is, this website 
give alternative mutual funds you can transfer the money into. Similarly, if your church has a pension fund or any other fund that it invests in the stock market, then the church itself can choose to make sure that this money is invested only in things that, the, that you feel are morally appropriate and are not profiting from, from, uh, from building new nuclear weapons. This is something we can all do. Our guest on today's conversation has been Max Tegmar, professor of physics at MIT. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Max. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.